We have been in a, as a church in a series in Nehemiah. Um, earlier, one of our deacons, Nate uh, Copper, mentioned the, the uh, building fund and the progress to those uh, stages one and two, uh, education space that would replace the Chapman building, and that's all very exciting. Um, anytime a church is building anything, you've got to have a series through Nehemiah. It's, it's written somewhere. If a church is going to build something, well, Nehemiah is the book about building, right? And easily, we understand the book of Nehemiah to be a book about building walls, physical things. Actually, in the book of Nehemiah, the, the um, emphasis is actually God is using Nehemiah to build his people. The wall is the first opportunity in the book, but the book doesn't stop there. The wall's done, and the book keeps going. Because the book of Nehemiah is actually building a wall to be building in the lives of God's people. God is, is a lot more concerned about building his people than he is building buildings. And it's good to get back to this book of Nehemiah. We interrupted it during the Advent season because really the Advent season, we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus into humanity, in the nativity. He came into earth as human to die in our place. And we also, in the Advent season, anticipate his coming again. So those two bookends, our Savior coming for us and our Savior returning again, that's really the beginning and goal of the Christian life. And so we, we'll interrupt anything for Advent, year by year. And yet we, we uh, come now back again to Nehemiah. We've been through the first nine chapters so far, so we're picking it up in the middle of the story. I thought it good to just review, and I'm going to say I'm going to review briefly, and you're going to chuckle. Yeah. Well, chapters one and two. Chapters one, Nehemiah becomes aware of a grave need among God's people in Jerusalem. The situation is dire, and you'd think Nehemiah has got to roll up his sleeves and he's got to get to work. Actually, Nehemiah falls on his knees and he begins to pray. He asks God, this I cannot do. God, you have to move here. You have got to act. And God does, and God opens a door. And Nehemiah takes the next step through it. And then, chapter 2, you see Nehemiah then, as God has opened the door, as God has made a way, uh, Nehemiah's next task, task is to convince the people of God in Jerusalem that in spite of their dire circumstances and difficulties that they face, that the good hand of our God is upon us. Look what God is doing. And so they rally together. They are encouraged with this view of what God has done for us, that God has made the way. And they begin, and they all jump in, and they build. And you have got, got priests and perfumers, people that know nothing about uh, stones and masonry and construction, and they are rebuilding and filling in and closing the, whole, the breaches in this wall, and they're resetting the gates. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see, even today, 25 Hundred years later, roughly, you can still see sections of the wall that Nehemiah rebuilt. And some of those sections don't look that good. Say, okay, that's where the priests or the perfumers built. That's what happened there. Right? They don't look really good, and yet it's still standing. I made the point back in chapter three that some things worth doing are worth doing poorly. You say, Well, I can't I, I, I can't do as good as somebody else, so I No, no, no. God got them all involved. Everybody in. In the same way in the church today, 
God is not worried about what you will do perfectly because none of us will. God's intention is that you will join in and live in God's new life. Live it out toward people around us. And so they do. And when they do, when a church gathers together as well and moves forward in God's will, as Nate was describing earlier, we will face opposition. There will be trouble. They face opposition in chapter 4. And so they continue on with prayerful watchfulness. With a sword in one hand and a brick in the other. We will continue to serve. We will continue to build in the lives of others. And we'll do it with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in our hands, in our heads, in our hearts. That opposition, even distractions that will come in the midst of God's work, they'll not only come from enemies without, they will come from within us. The pressures that will arise will bring some other problems to the surface. It'll expose things in our own lives. And our enemy loves to use our weaknesses against us. That happens in chapter 5. And yet through confession and repentance, agreeing with God about where I fall short, that's how they move forward. And in chapter 6, moving forward together and continuing in the good work God has given and not letting other distractions and the enemy's invitations take them away from the good work that God has given. The wall is completed in 52 days. Wow. Look what God has done. That look what God has done sets up chapters 8 to 10, where they are looking at what God has done and their response to that. But first of all, chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a transition. Chapter 7 returns to a focus upon not the wall, Not the building, but the people. Because that's what the book is really about. This people of God, restored from exile, restored from destruction, where any of the other nations at that time that were swallowed up by these empires, Assyria and Babylon, have never been seen again. And yet, here is Israel. Return to her land. Return to Jerusalem. The temple rebuilt, and now the, the, the city and its walls rebuilt. God has reestablished them as their people in the place that he has set them in to make him known to the world. It's a transition back to God's work among, in, and through his people to the world around them. So they celebrate God's salvation. They celebrate God's restoration by hearing from and living in light of God's word, chapter 8. But hearing God's word, if you'll hear it seriously, if you'll commit yourself, as Nate was describing in those D groups, you'll commit yourself to God's word, it's going to convict you. It's going to reveal things. It'll be God's light shining in our heart. It'll be Nathan the prophet's finger on David's chest and There'll be things where you realize, I have fallen short. I have been unfaithful. What do we do with that? Well, the reminder in chapter 9 is when the word brings conviction because we don't measure up, that's where we call on, that's where we fall on God's forgiveness, that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. That's the message of Nehemiah 9. Our God is a Savior who restores. And so... We remember his covenant that he has made with us, that he has chosen us to be his people in the world, to live out his new life in the world, and that's what chapter 10 is now concerned with. 
Nehemiah chapter 10 actually begins or follows from Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 8. So this idea of living in God's life, spelled out in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38, because of this, because of God's faithfulness, even in our unfaithfulness, because even though we have fallen short, God has restored us. God has lifted us up. God has lifted us, as the psalmist says, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a solid rock. So in verse 38, because of all this, we will make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are all the, all the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They're going to make a contract. They're going to make a covenant. They're going to make an agreement with God, a solemn agreement, and they're going to put their names to it. And the princes of all the family groups and clans are going to be represented of all the people. Those names are listed now in verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10. I'm not going to read them. My Hebrew's not that good. I wouldn't get them right. Don't you hate it when somebody gets your name wrong? I do. I hate it. You know, I, I introduce myself and they pronounce my name, Bob, wrong. Good to meet you, Bob. I know, okay, it never happens. But some of you get that. Um, my, my daughter's surname, Genora, I think. I'm still not sure if I'm saying it right. I'm not going to pronounce all those names, but the point being in all those names is the, what the, what's going on? What's going on in chapter 10 is this is a covenant renewal ceremony. And here, these Israelites restored by God back in Jerusalem to be his ambassadors to the nation to show the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness, the faithfulness of God to the people around them. And they want to live in light of that covenant. They put their names to it. They, they commit to a covenant renewal ceremony. A covenant renewal. It's kind of like a, a couple in marriage. They renew their vows. Maybe there's been some rocky years. Maybe there's been some difficult times and storms of life. Maybe there's been some sin and forgiveness and restoration. And God has reconciled and they're back together. And, and now they're going to renew those marriage vows. And they're saying, we want to live in this covenant relationship. And it's a special time. It's a wondrous time. Look what God has done. We want to now live it out. That's what's going on here. This has happened at different times in Israel's history. Moses does it with the generation that's about to enter the promised land. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. He's setting before them again God's covenant with this new generation about to enter the land. And he's reminding them in verses 27, or chapters 27, 28, 29 of Deuteronomy that, that these are the consequences, these are the blessings of God's covenant. But if you do not live in this relationship with God that he has provided for you, then you're not going to experience the blessings of it. You're going to be exiled out of the land as well. And Israel has experienced that. And now they've been restored. And those who have been restored said, we want to live in God's covenant. There's a comparison for that for us as participants, not in the law of Moses as is, as is described here. We're going to see some comparisons directly out of Moses. And we're going to say, is that what we're supposed to do? Should we sit down today and make a list of things I'm going to commit to do to God and sign it? Is that the answer here? That's not what this is telling us. We are not under, under Moses' law or our own moral list. We are going to live in God's new covenant according to his spirit within us in the light of his word. 
But there's some clear parallels that we can get out of chapter 10 of how we do that and what it looks like. And one of the first parallels I see, for instance, in terms of our living in light of this new covenant and the fact that God puts that before us, that in, in, the, in the salvation that God had given us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins, as is laid out in Romans chapter 1 through 11, that we sinners are justified by faith in Christ to new life, that we live out in this flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's faithfulness, not ours. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, beloved of God, by, I urge you, I plead with you by the mercies of God, because of and by means of God's mercy toward you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Live, Paul is saying, in God's new covenant. Live it out. This wonderful new life God has given to you, live in it. Ephesians chapter 4 says the same thing. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To live in light of it. To live out. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, you have all that God has done for us and made us his own. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians tell us, well, how does living in that look? Walk worthy of the calling. The, the walking, chapters 4, 5, and 6, flows out of the calling that God has called us to in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So we also are going to live in, and I can't think of a better place out of Nehemiah chapter 10, I can't think of a better place for us to be reminded of this as we start into a new year. You think about New Year's resolutions, and it's good to resolve. I remember an old, an old hymn I used to sing when I was much younger. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured, captured my sight. Some of you remember that hymn. It's a hymn of resolve, of resolution. That's what the people are saying here. We want to live with God. We want to walk in his ways. Let's live in God's new life. And one of the things you see right out of the bat is here's our names. We're putting them down. What does that describe for us? How does that relate to us? Well, I remember another old hymn. Is my name written there? In the book, Bright and Fair. On the page, Bright and Fair. In the book of thy kingdom, is my name written there? Have you committed yourself? Have you entrusted yourself to God's new covenant? That's what we're going to celebrate at this table towards the end of the service. We're going to celebrate that, that this table, this cup that Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Do you believe God? Concerning Jesus and forgiveness of your guilt, your shame, in Jesus who died for you and rose again. Do you believe God concerning Jesus? That's what it is to, be a, to participate in God's new covenant. God, I believe you concerning Jesus, my Savior. Is your name written there? Along this list, 27 verses of those who have said, we are in we commit ourselves, we entrust ourselves to God's new covenant. And if that's the case then, from verse 28, we're going to live as God's people in the midst of other people. 
That was true for Israel. Israel is going to live as God's people in the midst of the peoples that are surrounding them now in the land. People like the Samaritans, people like the Ammonites we've already met in the book of Nehemiah. They're going to live as God's people in the midst of other people. They're going to be separate from them. They're going to walk in God's new realities and God's new ways. They're going to raise up their children to walk in new ways. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, it's not just those who signed, they signed for all of them. The rest of the people and the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, everybody who has separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of our God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles and they enter into this covenant. They enter into a curse and an oath or a sworn promise to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And it's going to go on. We're going to describe all the different components that make up this. What is it going to look like for us to be different? We're going to live as God's people in the midst. We're going to live as God's people separate. We're going to be holy, different, unique as God is holy and different. Ephesians 4.17 says, No longer walk as the rest of the world walks. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 says, The time that is past is enough for doing what the rest of the world wants to do. God calls us to live differently. God calls us to show his character to the rest of the world. And one of the ways that they're going to do that is they're also going to raise up their kids. They're going to, they're going to separate themselves. They're not going to join themselves to people that do not share the same value, people that don't share the same faith. And it doesn't mean we're going to isolate ourselves. It doesn't mean that they're going to cut themselves off from the people around them. They're going to demonstrate that God is different to the people around them. And we can't do that if we just pull up the drawbridges and build the walls and stay isolated among ourselves. One of, one of the things that's important to us as a church, that you are not so busy in church stuff that you have no time to have any friendships, relationships with people around you who need to know Jesus through you. We want you to have the margin in life to have room for others that God has set you among as his ambassador for Christ. But among the midst of those people, we are going to be different. We are going to be unique. That we are going to live according to this curse and sworn promise, this oath. That's, that's in essence, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we are not going to, again, pledge this morning to put ourselves under the law of Moses with its promises, its, its sworn blessings, as well as its curses. We're not going to do that. Jesus has been cursed for us. We have been freed from, released from the curse of the law. We live according to not the covenant with Moses. We live according to the new covenant where God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. That, that we work out our salvation. We live it out because, Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God is working in us. God is working his new covenant. If we are living in that new, then yes, we're going to put off the old. We're going to put on the new, to use Ephesians 4 language. 
As Colossians chapter 3 says, if you then are risen with Jesus. Do you catch that question? It's a condition statement that what he's going to say next only applies to you if you are risen in Jesus, which is a salvation declaration. That I was buried with Christ and raised with Christ to walk in new life. He says, if you were raised with Christ, then live that new life. If you then are risen with Christ, if you have believed in him as your Savior, so that his death is your death and his resurrection is also your resurrection, if you are risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections, set your desires, set your priorities on things above, not on the things of the world. For you, in terms of your own life, have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, your future. When Christ is revealed, then we will be revealed with him in glory. So how we live today is no longer for ourselves, no longer merely for the priorities of this world. We now live leaning toward God's eternal future. That's an essence of what is it to live in God's new life. These people are committing themselves also to raise up their children to walk with the Lord in the midst of surrounding ungodliness. It's not, it's not simply enough to just say, here's the rules and follow them. You know, if you're a parent or a grandparent today, those children that you have influence and responsibility for, they are living in a world that is much harder. In our society, in our culture, they are living in a culture that is much more difficult, much more ungodly. The, the influences, the evil influences are much more insidious than they were when you were a child. And how are we going to prepare them? Not merely to, to lay out boundaries and try to keep them isolated and safe. How are we going to strengthen them in their faith in Christ that they know how to live in the face of the temptations of godliness that are all around us in society today? It's not merely enough saying don't have TikTok on your phone or don't even have a phone because guess what? Their friend will have a phone. How are we going to Raise them, teach them. And this is not something that can merely be done on Sunday at church. That will never be enough. That within our families and within circles of connection together that we equip, as I say in verse 30, our, our daughters, our sons, that we equip them to live in an ungodly world. It's more of a challenge than ever. How are we specifically going to do this? How are we specifically going to live out this new life? There's examples given in verses 31 to 38. So that's what I want to try to unpack in, 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 in a few more minutes that we have together. Look at verse 31. For instance, if the people of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy for them any grain on the Sabbath day or any holy day. There we go. We're with Chuck's, right? We're going to line ourselves up with Chuck Produce. We are not going to buy and sell on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. That's how we're going to live this out. No, that's probably not it. What is it about this Sabbath day? In fact, it goes on, not merely buying and selling on the Sabbath when the people show up outside the city gates, but we will also forego crops on the seventh year. We're going to let our fields rest, which means the farmer is also going to rest in God's rest in the seventh year. Not only that, but in the seventh year, the sabbatical year, we're going to forgive 
debts that are owed to us from others. There's a lot there economically that the people are being asked to give up. If you buy and sell, and every day that you buy and sell, maybe you, maybe you net a 5% profit on the gross. Well, you take one day out of business every week, and that's one day's 5% that you're not going to get. Okay? You're a farmer. One year out of seven, you're not going to farm. One year out of seven, you're going to give that profit up. And how are you going to live during that year? Hopefully there's enough in years one through six that you're going to be able to survive in year seven because that's what God has said to do. In fact, in the, in the sabbatical year, maybe you had a brother that came to you, somebody close within the church, let's say, who, who is um, in need and you loan them. And yet you loan that realizing this is a gift as well as a loan. I am ready. Whatever I loan, I am ready to simply forgive and let go. Because in Israel, in the Sabbath year, that's exactly what you did. In the Sabbath year, if you believe God and wanted to walk in his ways, year seven comes along and you're going to release your brother, your fellow Israelite, from that debt that was owed by them. Now, if you're going to do that, if you're going to pull that off, what does that mean? You are trusting God for your provision. There's the overarching God's people for, for all time and any time. How do we apply this passage? We're not Israelites. We don't necessarily observe a, the seventh day as a Sabbath. We don't necessarily observe the seventh year as everybody takes the seventh year off from work. But how do we do this? That God's people in all times, we'll trust God ultimately for our provisions rather than what we can rustle up and provide for ourselves. So often we will scurry and worry and press ourselves into vocation and, and, and career because we have got to provide for ourselves and for others and for an unknown future. And yet our future is not unknown. Our future is not unknown. It is not a hidden secret that, that there's no way. Our God knows every bit of it. And our God will provide for us. Do you believe, do you believe that God will provide for your abundant entrance into eternal life? Do you believe that? Because of what God has done for you, how he's shown you his love in Jesus. Do you believe that? That God will provide for you an abundant future in eternal life. Then do you believe that your God also will provide for you according to your needs as he knows them and what will be best for us for all of eternity that God is able to provide for your needs in the next seven years? Do you believe that? That God will provide for you in the midst of retirement. And that doesn't come with any promises from Bob the prophet that you're going to have this prosperity or this wonderful retirement. But God knows our needs. And if we can, if we can trust him for eternity, we can trust him in the immediate. And if you're going to observe a Sabbath day off, or you're going to observe a Sabbath year off from farming, you're going to have to trust God to provide for you just like he provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. In fact, if you're going to give out of what you have 
for the ongoing needs of church ministry. If you're going to give out of what you have for a building project that's going to benefit future generations, if you're going to give out of what you have for the, for the going forth of the gospel around the world, it's because you trust God that what you give, He's going to provide for you. I can give what I have because God will also provide for my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ. They trust God to provide. Not only that, but getting more specific, not merely in terms of economics, but we will give ourselves as stewards of the life and resources that God has given us. Look at verse 32. We will take upon ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings for atonement for Israel, all the work of the house of our God, everything that continues to happen day by day and week by week at the temple that's paid for out of the offerings given by God's people, Israel. And so it is in the church today that the ministry continues for the building up of the body of Christ and the showing of the likeness of Christ as a corporate community in our surrounding community by the ongoing support, the ongoing giving of God's people. We're going to commit ourselves to that. We will participate. If I could make it general in this way, we will participate in God's worship and in his work among his people so that others also may know Christ. We'll give ourselves to that. We will give something out of the money that we have so that that continues to happen. Verse 33 and 34, or rather I read 33, verse 34. We, the priests and the Levites and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the time appointed year by year to burn on the altar... Basically, the temple has sacrifices. The sacrifices are burnt offerings. The burnt offering, the fire, needs wood. Well, from the days of Joshua forward, they had Gibeonites for that. They could hire that out. They could subcontract that. But guess what? Out of the exile and the return, Israelites returned. The Gibeonites didn't return. Who's going to bring the wood now? Who's going to be the woodcutters and the water carriers? Who's going to do the chores, the, the, the various labor and work that is needed to continue the ministry of those sacrifices which proclaim Christ? Who's going to do that? There's day-to-day -day work. Think of it as family chores that need to be done among the family of God. And we're going to commit ourselves to do those. Now, we can hire it out. There's lots of stuff, and what we are not able to do ourselves, we will hire out. We will pay for services to be done as a church. We do that together. And yet there's something about rolling up our sleeves and together having a hand in the stuff that needs to be done that binds us together as a church family, just as family does chores together. When you have guests come over to your house, they probably don't take out the, the trash. Maybe it's a gesture they'll offer to help you with the dishes. Maybe they won't. But the responsibility for taking out the garbage, the responsibility for vacuuming the living room, the responsibility for taking out the garbage, that, those are family responsibilities, aren't they? And so it is with God's church as well. We will commit ourselves as stewards of our lives and our resources that God has given us for the work that God intends to do. Look at verse 35. We obligate ourselves in this new year 
to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree, year by year to the house of our Lord. We also will bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law. They would bring the first fruits, not the last fruits, if I could simply say it like that. They would, they would devote the firstborn to God, not the lastborn. Okay, God, you give me enough, and then I'll bring something that's left to you. That's not how it worked in Israel, according to God's covenant through Moses. It's also not how it works in the church, according to God's new covenant. He calls us, in light of all that he has done for us, to present ourselves. It's been said, God doesn't want your 10%. He doesn't. He wants your life. He wants you, your heart, as a living sacrifice. And if God has that, he is not worried about any percent. Present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's what our God calls us to. To live for him who died for us and rose again. We will not bring leftovers. We will serve first. We will carve out time. I want everybody within the church family, I want everybody to have a place. This is my place where I know that I give myself away for the sake of others. This isn't something that serves me. This isn't something that, that benefits me. This is, this, is, this is a way that I give myself away for somebody else's blessing and benefit. And it might be something going on here in the church, like teaching here or there, like, like serving and supporting in a particular ministry, helping in the office, helping in nursery. There's, there's, there's various ways that that can look. It might be, announcement I forgot, staying after church today to, to uh, help put the Christmas trees away. Julie tells me she cannot take the trees down by herself. And I'm not big and strong enough to be the only one to help. So we need a few people to stay to do that today. I was supposed to mention that earlier. But, but in, 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 in all of these things, it, it might be that your primary giving yourself away occurs within the home, caring for someone. It might be that God has given you a ministry in the community, that, that you're gathered together as church strengthens you to be one as an ambassador who is out there in the midst, and this is where you give yourself away for others. I want each of us, I'm not worried about filling church programs. I do want every one of us to know this is where I give myself away for another. Because that's where the mind of Christ is worked into our lives, in giving ourselves away for the sake of another. That's our goal. And I don't want there to be that, that 20% are, are busy, busy, busy doing all the stuff that needs doing. I do not want the church to be like the NFL. I've used this analogy before. But the NFL, Seahawks' last game of the season today, you can see it happen again. There'll be 22 guys on the field in desperate need of rest. And there'll be 70,000 in the stands... Well, maybe only 60,000 by now. In the stands, desperately in need of some exercise. And the church should not be that way. The church should be the place where we gather together as family, not all doing the same things, but each one doing something that is for the benefit, for the blessing of another. Finally, in verse 39 then, Verse 39 kind of sums it up. For the people of Israel and for the sons of Levi are going to bring in a contribution. Let me get to the last 
last verses here, we will not neglect the house of our God. All these things that are listed for the sacrifices, for the temple, even the tithe that is received among all the people for the Levites, and the Levites tithe that to support the priests. All of this is done so that we will not neglect the house of our God. And I would love at this point to turn that into a final building program plea. If I was thinking about building program, the one thing I would say is, you see what God is doing? You see how God is providing? My concern about the building program, normally a pastor's worry about a building program is there won't be enough provided. My concern is that some of you are going to miss out. That God is providing, the day is going to come when we are going to say, like Moses did in the construction of the tabernacle, don't bring any more, enough has been provided. And that's a glorious place to come to. Yet I do not want some of you to have missed out. I think it's important that every one of us, and they will not all be the same size sacrifices. They never are. But I do want all of us to have a part. I want you to look ahead five years from now and look back, and, and as you're seeing the ministry that is happening in that facility, I want you to be able to look back and remember, the Spirit put it upon my heart. And I yielded to God, and I gave something that I thought was a little hard at the time. I sacrificed. I gave something up. And God used that in this, in what's happening here today. That's the share I want every one of us to have. Whether it seems smaller or larger, I don't want any of us to, to be, in a sense, feeling like we're hangers-on of what God did at a certain season in our church because it's clear that God is moving and providing. And I want everyone, every one of us to have some share in that. That would be my worry, that some of us wait too long for our part of that sacrifice and God does it without us. We will not neglect the house of our God, though it is not a call for a building project. That we will not neglect the house of our God, the temple of our God. That temple today is God's church that God is building. Let me remind you of Ephesians chapter 2. It's people. God is, if we're building something, it's God, is, God uses whatever else we're building to build his people. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens outsiders, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You are God's children in God's family. Built on, now he shifts the metaphor. He shifts the image. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a temple, a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Did you catch that? The temple today, the house of God that we will not neglect, is the church composed of these people that we will devote ourselves to building up one another as followers of Jesus. We will go to others around us. We will bring others into this God's family, God's building, God's temple. And there we will build. With the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in one hand, a brick in the other, the stuff that needs doing, we will build into the lives of one another, building up one another as followers of Jesus because that's the commission. That's the mission that God has given us. We're going to close. Coming around this table, 
And as I asked you earlier, as we started this conversation about a new covenant, I, I asked the question, well, are you in that new covenant? That new covenant that is expressly expressed as this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And I want to ask you, as we have said, we want to live in that new covenant. Well, one of the key ways we do that is I asked earlier, do you believe that God will provide for you for, for eternal life? And if you do, then, well, do you believe that God will provide for you today, this week, this year? And can you relieve, can you hold what you have in an open hand, trusting that God will provide? But what about the forgiveness that this table represents? If you are in God's new covenant, can you believe it for eternity? Yes. Can you believe it for today? Can you believe God's forgiveness for today? We're going we're gonna to sing a song here next in, in closing about how deep is the Father's love for us in His forgiveness for us in Jesus. And I want us to take that time to remember what it is that God has forgiven us from. And don't just think about long ago and far away. I want us to think in that song this is where God has forgiven me. This table reminds me of God's forgiveness for this morning or yesterday or this last week where I have been unfaithful. I have not been all who I should have been, but God continues to be faithful for me. That where my mind has gone, in unfaithfulness, God continues to be faithful. What I have said to another in unfaithfulness, God continues faithful in his forgiveness of me. I want, us to, I want you to think about that. Maybe think about somebody else that you need to forgive, uh, that as we have been forgiven, that we forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven. As we approach this table, we approach it in a, in a time within our community, a time of division a time of pressure, a time of, 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 of fear, and thus a time of anger and division one to another. Maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive. Let go of that as God has let go of your offense against him. So as the worship team comes, comes forward now, let's just pause and pray. God, would you, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us, Father, to forgive? Would you help us, Father, to claim your forgiveness even for today, for yesterday, for this week? Would you help us, Lord, to being reminded at this table, Father, to rest in your forgiveness even in the days ahead and to live it out toward people around us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.